Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Let's talk about the uh, anti-Alzheimer's and nootropics and cognitive decline topic that's been a thread for the last few weeks. And uh, this time we're not going to talk about drugs unless, of course, as a avid listener to this station and its wonderful musical programs, you consider music to be a drug. And it turns out that it may be one of the best drugs of all for enhancing cognition. Uh, Enhanced cognition is well known to be ranged to uh, be linked to a range of positive life outcomes like well getting a better job and enjoying improved health. However, it's remained unclear whether uh, enhanced cognitive skills are just temporary uh, or whether they are long lasting. New research published in Psychological Science suggests that the benefits of musical instruments may persist for decades. Now, there have been studies in the past comparing the mental abilities of musicians and non-musicians, and they show that musical training is related to small but statistically significant cognitive benefits, even when you try to control for confounding factors such as socioeconomic status, for example. Uh, Findings from experimental studies prospectively with children have also lent support to the idea that musical training might cause an improvement in cognitive ability. Indeed, there's uh, there's some evidence that even just two years of musical training improves uh, cognitive development. But most of these studies have a major flaw. They don't last very long. They almost always have a short monitoring period. It's not because we wouldn't want to monitor them for a long time, but it's really hard to monitor people over time. Modern industrial civilization, populations are fairly mobile. They move you lose track of them over five, ten years, and they can be. Re- they change their names. They move, You know, they change their phone number. Really hard to track them down. It gets very, very expensive and challenging. And of course, good science de- depends on following a group and not having any dropout. Any kind you, anytime you have dropout, you've lost data, and that makes your subsequent conclusions suspect. Now. Uh, a group at Edinburgh University uh, found a sort of motherload of information, something called the Lothian Birth Cohort. Really interesting thing. On a single day back in 1947, the Scottish government did an IQ test on just about every 11-year-old child who was in school in the entire country. So we had baseline data from 1947. Well, when those people were 50... In 1997, uh, Dr. Ian Dreary contacted uh, about 1,091 of these people and got them to enter into follow-up studies. So he tested them once more for their cognition, and he tested them in 2004 and then in 2007. And they still have in a small group, they're still following them every three years. Now, there's been, of course, dropouts and deaths. But nevertheless, they do have baseline data, so they can watch the decline of base of the baseline in the group that they are able to follow. So that makes these conclusions 
you know, potentially very powerful. And it also is a extremely long longitudinal study. So all of the early childhood events and the economic stuff kind of goes out the window. And we're really looking at over the course of a person's life, given all of the variables, is music helpful? So they had uh, a questionnaire that they uh, answered recently. They decided to go back and study music uh, experience. And so they answered, asked the people who are now 82 years old how many instruments they played and what their training was like, how many years they continued to practice their instrument and at what performance level, for example, you know, beginner, intermediate, or advanced, they had actually reached. And they ended up with about 366 cohort members. Uh, And of those, 117 had some degree of experience with musical instruments. And now we have data from 1947, 2004, 2007, and now and again at the age of 82. So that's those that's a really nice set of data points. And starting at age 11, going to age 82. Okay, we don't get data like that every day. So what they found was a significant positive relationship between playing an instrument and uh, the decline of cognitive ability over time. Uh, So the more years and the more hours of practice with an instrument, the better people did with cognitive decline over 70 years of life. It's a small effect, but even if you adjust education, health status, uh, and socioeconomic status, it's still held. So uh, you're learning to play a musical instrument has some clear benefits. Continuing to play it probably allows more benefits. I'm going to dust off my flute after reading this. It's been sitting there staring at me reproachfully for about a decade, so I guess I better, you know, get the pads fixed and start playing it again. So the, why would this be? Well, when you play music, you're doing a lot of ferrying things back and forth across the brain, ferrying data, motor activity, bouncing stuff through that white matter. And we are now understanding that, uh, particularly with cognitive decline, what happens in the white matter may actually be more important than what happens in the gray matter. But people have to focus, right? They have to focus their intention. They have to coordinate their ear and their motor skills, and they have to remember things. So this is, you know, equivalent to some of that cognitive testing, some of those games, the brain games, and uh, uh, something like lucidity. You know, uh, there are lots of computer systems out there purporting to help you, and the best of them actually do something called tone matching and force you to focus on multiple things at once across physical, motor, uh, cognitive, and processing. So, yeah. Music is doing that, particularly if you're reading music. So what about uh, if you don't play an instrument, thinking about doing it? There's solid data across many other shorter studies looking at treating early mild cognitive decline. And one of the things you do that helps a lot is exercise your body and exercise your brain. And music is one of the two things that really exercise your brain. You know what the other one is? learning a new language. So, 
if you used to play an instrument, learn to play another one. It seems like that is a really, really good way to preserve your cognitive skills. If you're a grandmother or a grandfather and you're looking for something to benefit your grandchild, probably music lessons or encouraging musical talent that they already have would make a great deal of sense. We are going to be talking a little bit to, uh, it looks like Bonnie, I think is the name, and I'm not sure where she's from. Are you there, Bonnie? Yes. Hi, Dr. Dawn. Hi. I'm 76 years old. I'm a registered nurse, and I have very bad osteoporosis. I have multiple fractures in my back, in the spine, in the lumbar region, and um, and I've been taking painkillers, which I think have upset my stomach because now I have pain in my stomach, mm. and um, I'm, I'm on... I'll just tell you what meds I'm on. Sure. I'm, I'm on Percocet, Abilify, Zimbalta, Prilosec, and Forteo. Okay. And I, I take supplements. I've had bad dentistry, car, two car accidents. Um, I'm having difficulty focusing. I have depression. And... Um, I was in three abusive relationships. I was poisoned 30 years ago from something like Roundup. It was a um, another name for it. It was by Growell. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And I was poisoned. That got me on prednisone, which I took for many years, and that started me on opioids. Well, it also probably aggravated the osteoporosis, that prednisone is a known risk factor for that. Yes, absolutely, but I was running 106 fever, and the only thing that was able to get the fever down was prednisone, and they tried everything, and I almost died from that poisoning, and it left me with an arthritic condition. What are the questions that you have for me? It sounds like there's a lot, it sounds very complicated. So, you know, we have to kind of, I, I want to meet, I won't meet all of your needs, obviously, but let's try to meet one of them. What, what, think of the most mm, prior, your priority question for me today. To get rid of this pain that I have. Okay. So let's focus, let's focus on pain. You're already on yeah. a strong pain medication, which is an opiate pain medication, and uh, the the Percocet has Tylenol in it, so uh, acetaminophen. So it doesn't typically cause stomach upset, but it does cause constipation. You're on Prilos- yeah. You're on Prilosec, which actually can aggravate osteoporosis because it interferes with calcium absorption. And you're on a drug, Forteo, which, if I'm remembering correctly, does have some potential for causing GI upset as a side effect. So... Yeah. So, oh, I, so I'm not sure if you're attributing the uh, attributing the Percocet as the cause of your abdominal pain. You know that may or may not be the case. I'm not sure about your conclusion there. Uh, so, when you say yeah. "help me with my pain," which pain? Because you've described, I'm sure you have musculoskeletal pain and back pain, and you have yeah. right. So, uh, is it that pain that you're asking about, or is it the intestinal yeah. pain? It's both. It's the uh, back and the and the upper GI. Okay. The so 
Let me let me pick the upper GI quit first, okay? All right. So, uh, your how often do you take your Forteo? Just once a day, and I took it two years ago, and I didn't have any reactions from it. Mm-hmm. How long and did you take it? Back then, two years. You took it two years, and then you stopped, and then you went back on it. Is that right? Just uh, two weeks ago, I went back on it because. The okay. bone density showed it, it's very bad. Right. Yes. So. Have they got you on vitamin D and vitamin K? Yes. Good. All right. And so, you know, it's the drug that you're taking is is actually it's it's a it's calcitonin, and it's a a synthetic hormone. And effectively, what you're doing is in you're you you're it's a tricking the body into putting calcium into the bones. That's how it's supposed to work. And it's uh, it's generally pretty effective. It's got some side effects, which is why we don't use it as a first-line agent. So many of the audience haven't heard of it. That's why I wanted to throw that out. But with respect to uh, your musculoskeletal pain, I want to talk to you about something called salmon calcitonin. And this has been, it's, it's a, um, I don't know, and you have to work, talk to somebody about whether it plays well with Forteo. It's never come up in my practice, but I'm sure one could do a drug interaction check. But the salmon calcitonin has a good, strong track record for treating spinal pain from spinal fractures. And we have no idea why it works. It's probably not a direct effect of the agent on bones. It's sort of a mystery, but I always try it in people who have pain from compression fractures. And I'd say it's got, you know, a reasonable, maybe two-thirds, 60%, you know, maybe a 70% improvement rate. And it's a mystery to me why it works, but it's worth a try if it uh, will interact properly with your forteo. And that's just something for an expert to answer. But I did want to throw that idea out. Um, You're on... you obviously got some upper GI pain. Has anybody, is there a reason that you couldn't use uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories? Is there a history of ulcer disease or esophagitis or anything like that? Oh, I don't have a history of that. Okay. But the eye doctor wants to do an endoscopy. That's a good idea. Yeah, that's a good idea just to see how you're doing. You may actually have the uh, you may have reflux from the proton pump inhibitor. It's uh, that's not unusual, and uh, you may be becoming resistant to that agent and then getting rebound reflux, and it can be a bit of a of a tangle to fix. So it's definitely worthwhile uh, looking at that. In fact, one of the things I was going to talk about today was tape how to taper off of proton pump inhibitors and cross taper onto something else. But in your situation, we need to make sure that your esophagus is okay before we started something like that. I, I did want to mention another agent, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory that you could combine with your other pain pills if the calcitonin is contraindicated. This is called Arthrotech, and it contains two agents, Cytotec, which is, oddly enough, it's uh, one of the drugs that's used for chemical abortions, but its purpose is actually to protect the stomach lining from drugs like Motrin or Advil. And so Arthrotec contains a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, but it also contains this protective agent. 
And so that can be used in combination. Other agents that might be helpful, especially at night when you're trying to sleep, uh, gabapentin, which is technically a seizure drug, but it stabilizes nerve cells and it can be help, helpful for pain control. Yeah, I tried that. That didn't do anything. Sometimes yeah. you have to really push the dose and wait a while. And a lot of people just get start or started off on too high a dose. They get sedated and they give up too easily. You know, I I understand the, your situation. You know, you're really between a rock and a hard place. Acupuncture can be helpful, particularly ear acupuncture, because that goes after the pain centers. Uh, there are some mechanical things that can be done. Uh, including uh, including injecting um, a little bit of opiate directly into the spinal column. These are called pain pumps. And sometimes there's electrical stimulation that can be done. So do you have a doctor who actually specializes in pain that you're working with, maybe up at the Stanford Pain Clinic or anything like that? Yes, a pain med- I have a pain doctor. Where? But, uh, he's here in uh, Burbank. In Burbank, okay. So uh, you might want to go to one of the tertiary medical centers like UCSC or UCLA Medical Center, uh, and really, you're you're very complicated. I'm sorry, <laughs> that's an awful thing to tell a patient is that they're complicated. Uh, but no, but no, it no. but it would be, I think, you know, I I think really going to one of the top people for bone pain and osteoporosis pain uh, at a you know at, at a tertiary medical center. Might it might be worth getting an opinion from them? They may have some other ideas. Mm-hmm. I know you're probably really sick of going to see doctors right now, but you're presenting yeah. you're presenting me with such a complex case that you know yeah. we have to start somewhere at unraveling it. Yeah. Well, can you help me? Well, I don't know what I. I, I mean, I'm trying to understand how I possibly could, and I've given you some. Some thoughts. Yeah. Yes. But I, I mean, I don't, I'm, functional medicine isn't, you know, magic. It's, it's science. And there's a lot of things here that are fighting each other. So I guess the first thing I would do from a, you know, if I were managing your care is I'd try to get on top of the pain and I'd make sure that the bone markers, uh, the blood markers or the urine markers for bone deposition were elevated, meaning that you were, I mean, decreased, which would mean that you are making new bone. I'd want to make sure that forte yeah. was working. If well, it, if it didn't seem, doctor, I'm sorry, but he said it takes two to three months for the forte to work. Well, uh, uh, yes, but you can measure in the interim. You can measure urine or blood bone markers, and that can give you an idea of. It. And you said you'd been on the Forteo for two years, so I don't know if your doctor's been doing that. No, that's, no. All right. No. Well, that needs to, that might be something to consider. And again, I, I'm not in a position, having not reviewed your chart, to second-guess someone else's management. But the Forteo could be causing your abdominal pain, and it, we need to be sure it's helping your bones. Obviously, the fractures that you've already got probably causing you pain. Osteoporosis without fractures is not a painful condition. It's painful only once you break. But once you're broken, that usually heals. Yes. Well, it was a couple months ago that um, the MRI had a CAT scan and MRI, and it showed multiple fractures in the lumbar region. 
Right. Well, of course you have that with advanced osteoporosis, but that doesn't mean those are causing your pain. But it's, you know, it needs to be considered as one of a series of possibilities. Anyway, I'm, you know, I don't think this is something that we can really handle on the radio. You know, I don't have a, I don't, I'm not Felix the Cat. I don't have a bag of, a magic bag of tricks here. I I have medical advice and ideas about how to approach complex medical problems, but I don't think this is something that we can do in the context of a radio program. So I want to wish you luck, and I really do want to encourage you to get to a tertiary medical center pain clinic, um, because I really think that's the first step for getting you better. One of those, uh, one of those devices I mentioned, you may need to, you know, skip right directly to that, but it's worth exploring. So please do take that advice. Thank you. What, what about um, just becoming your patient? I don't think it's appropriate to try to manage you from Burbank. You know, that's, that's, it's, this is not a remote kind of thing. So unless you, yeah. unless you're prepared to move to Santa Cruz, I don't think it's, I don't think it's feasible. I could, I can consult, I can review charts, you know, that's part of what I do. But in terms of uh, management, I, I don't know. I don't know. You might be a little bit out um, above my, uh, my skills, at least as the primary management person. I really think you need a specialist for a couple of your problems. Okay. You know, I'm certainly willing to talk to you off the air and uh, okay. review, re- review records. You know, you can just go to link to my practice and reach out to my office manager and we'll set something up and I'll do my best to help. Okay. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye for now. Four minutes before the top of the hour. So let's uh, do a couple of those COVID tidbits. Uh, This is just kind of lore, but I I thought it was interesting. You know, we've gone through a lot of variants, and this is the first time we've tracked variants of viruses uh, this quickly. I mean, we've talked about the flu and the H5N1 or the you know, H3N2 or whatever, and the antigenic shift. And that's been a topic of discussion uh, for 30 years on Ask Dr. Don, even in its earlier incarnations like Health Matters. Um, and even all the way back to Dominican Dialogue, we've talked about that every flu season. Uh, of course, COVID's a little bit of a different animal. But have you noticed how sometimes we use alphanumeric codes and sometimes we use the Greek letters? Well, that's something that I'd noticed, but I didn't quite understand what was going on with that. The backstory is that if a variant is considered a variant of concern, and that's either because uh, it's the first one or it's a significant mutation that has made it more infectious, as in the case of Delta, or has uh, made it even more infectious, as in the case of Omicron, then we give it a variation of concern. So it gets a letter in the Greek alphabet. Uh, However, there are lots of new strains that are different, but aren't sufficient. They aren't upgraded to variations of concern because they seem to still respond to the vaccinations that we're using. So these are the ones that get alphanumeric codes. So right now we're dealing with XBB1.1.5, and that is our current dominant form, and it'll undoubtedly change again, but it's really not sufficient, that different from um, XBB.1, and it's not all that different from the first uh, Omicron. So not different enough to be redesignated or studied. But there's lots, and uh, nobody really knows how we get these lineages emerging. Uh, one hypothesis is that in people with suppressed immune systems, 
So those with cancer drugs or uh, people with autoimmune disease, uh, people who are with organ transplants, when they get infected, they remain infected for a longer time. And so the virus has lots more reproduction cycles, so it has lots more time to accumulate mutations. And uh, what they do find is that people with lots uh, with immune system compromise do have uh, more variants. When they get COVID, there's more variants in their system, larger number of mutations. But those variants, they carry are actually kind of not very good at fighting the immune system because if they, uh, so they're different, but they aren't uh, really more transmissible. In fact, a lot of the viruses that people with immune suppression get aren't really transmittable to people who have an intact immune system or people who are vaccinated. And that's new information. Uh, Another idea is, well, maybe it's animal transmission, right? Transmissions from humans to cats, uh, dogs, mink, deer. We know that those have happened. Uh, Back in 2020, there was a, a real scare when there was a cluster of mink to human uh, SARS-CoV, where the minks had, SAR, had had COVID and they gave it to their handlers, and that was in Denmark. So they, like, killed all of the minks in Denmark. It was kind of a major, oh, my God, turns out that the virus that infected people from minks was really mutated, but it didn't pass. It was so mutated it couldn't pass back from human to human, so dodged a bullet there. So you can't necessarily know what's going to happen. We often and see bird flu eventually migrating to other barnyard animals and then eventually from pigs into humans. That's fairly common. And um, then there's the possibility of recombinant viruses. And this is one that is uh, interesting. It's the idea that maybe a person gets infected with two different strains of COVID at the same time, and they're making both co- both copies of both types of virus. And so what you get is... It, within a single cell, you get the virus trading pieces, kind of like uh, puzzle pieces. And so you end up with, you know, effusions. For example, the the XBB1.1.5 uh, is thought to have come from two different Omicron li- lineages fusing together. Uh, but So that's interesting, and that could be a factor. We're going to have plenty of opportunity to absorb because... Uh, What's happening in China with their reopening is going to uh, certainly offer the opportunity of lots of people to get infected and lots of variations. So stay tuned. We'll probably get more. Uh, You know, you wonder in terms of tracking these variants, could we just collect wastewater? I mean, I'm thinking about airplanes, right? We know that the virus travels via airplanes. Uh, So... If you're look, if you just collected the bathroom water from intercontinental flights and looked for new strains there, that would be a great way of tracking uh, new strains. It would also be a great way of tracking the tr- the uh, potential spread of new strains across the world, and it would give us some sense for what we needed to be. Uh, planning our vaccines against. I mean, we can reliably look in Asia for what flus are cropping up and know that those flus are going to hit California in January, February, maybe a little earlier like they did this year, and then travel throughout the rest of the world and Europe. And they tend to travel, you know, in a fairly reliable pattern. 
probably COVID's going to be an annual thing. There's already an announcement by the FDA talking about uh, recommending annual vaccines. And obviously, just like flu vaccine, these will be updated as indicated. But it's going to be important to surveil. And long-term surveillance of this virus is going to be absolutely critical for us to um, stay ahead of the curve and be aware if something really goes sideways for us. So we were just talking a little bit about the emergence of different strains of COVID. And, uh, you know, COVID is rife in wild deer. Uh, about a third of common white-tailed deer in at least four states have been exposed to COVID. Uh, and it doesn't look like they get sick from it, uh, but they have antibodies in their, vi- in their uh, bodies. So they've, they've definitely fought off the virus. So, you know, we were talking about animal reservoirs and mutating and then jumping back into humans. Well, uh, it's not just warning about deer. Blood samples from animals in Illinois, Michigan, New York, and Pennsylvania showed uh, positive levels, 60% in Michigan. And how the deer got exposed to the virus is really unclear. One researcher, Tony Goldberg from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, told the New York Times, well, maybe uh, people sneeze on a leaf or into the air near a deer. And, yeah, I think that's that's, uh, probably not it. But I have a theory, and I wanted to share it with you. So first of all, I had to ask myself, a um, a lot of grazing animals, herbivores, are known to eat the poop of other animals. And so I first looked to see whether deer eat poop. And indeed, uh, deer do, and particularly particularly fawns and their parents eat each other's poop. And presumably that the fawns eating the parents' poop helps them get a good microbiome, so it would be adaptive. But also, poop can have, uh, it can have bugs in it, and those bugs are a good source of protein. Uh, if you look at how some of these bioactive uh, eco-farms are running now, they graze the cows on the grass and then they send the chickens into the field to pull the bugs out of the, that have invaded the poop of the, uh, of the cows. And then, of course, the chickens eat the bugs and pick up a few uh, probiotics that way. It turns out that deer actually are not bothered by uh, human poop, they aren't afraid of it, and it doesn't repel them. Uh, such interesting things you can find when you go hunting for science on the internet. So, you know, I wonder if some, I wonder if this is from hunters pooping in the woods, hunters who are carrying COVID and just happen to uh, be exposed. And well, it's, uh, it's a possibility. One more uh, sort of COVID-ish things is the idea we've talked about the variants and getting to, if you're vaccinated and you get low-level COVID, and then you get another strain of low-level COVID, you could be the author of the next uh, of the next variant. Woohoo! Well, obviously, we don't want to give viruses a chance to mutate. And one really successful way that you can do that is to just wear your mask in public places, particularly high-risk areas where there's poor ventilation and a lot of people. So I was at a, uh, I, I think when you go to, say, a gallery opening or a fashion show 
on First Friday. I'm definitely going to have masks available and encourage people to wear them as we crowd to get as we crowd together to watch that uh, program. And the thing, the same thing is true when I go to the uh, Jewel Theater, which I'll be doing uh, to see the latest uh, performance on Saturday, and they insist that you wear a mask and even sitting there watching the play. And that's a circumstance where, yeah, you can do that. It's not onerous and it keeps the actors safe and it keeps the audience safe. And there's just not a good reason not to wear a mask when you're in a crowd of strangers and not eating. So I think we've covered that. Let's segue to some emails. We did have some interesting emails this week. The first one from an anonymous writer in Santa Cruz uh, regarding your Medicare conversation last program. Hi, Dr. Don. At the end of the last program, you talked about the disadvantages of Medicare Advantage plans. There's another side worth mentioning that you may not be aware of. I got on Medicare in the last three months of last year, and it's been nearly impossible finding a PCP who takes Medicare. I have standard Medicare and a Medigap plan, Uh, PAMFT, PAMPF will not take new patients who have not been recently seen at PAMP who are on Medicare uh, as they have moved their one their Medicare Advantage plan and they have one Medicare Advantage plan. And if you want to go, I guess they're, for, they're encouraging people to get in that plan or not letting them in at all. This can be a real problem when you have monopolies in an area on certain specialties. And it's part of the corporate practice of medicine that, uh, I've watched it kind of, well, let's just say, degrade the options for patients as well as physicians like myself. And yeah, and unless there's a law against it, corporations will find a way to give themselves a competitive advantage. And that's capitalism for you. Not sure it's a great model for healthcare, but it's the one we've got. Uh, continuing with Anonymous, I tried Dignity, and the earliest opening I could get was in mid-May of this year. Also, even many specialists are no, no, no longer taking new Medicare patients or will only see one if they have a referral from their primary. Lastly, there's a deductible for standard Medicare, which I don't believe is so for at least some of the Advantage plans. So while even though Advantage plans are disadvantaged plans in many ways, quoting Ralph Nader, a regular non-Advantage Medicare plan is definitely no walk in the park either. Yeah, well, Medicare is... Uh, this is a fair critique, and the the advantage of Medicare Advantage is that you get in, and in my opinion, you're giving up a lot of other advantages for that because you don't have the choice of, uh, well, you give up a lot of choices, including which doctors you're going to see and which treatments you're going to get, and you're likely to get a treatment that's uh, standardized across an organization. So, for example, I have a patient who's in the Kaiser Medicare Advantage plan, and uh, she was telling me that uh, in, her, in her situation, she needs to be on a drug uh, for she she needs to be uh, taking the Evisheld because she's on immunosuppressant drugs and she can't be vaccinated. So she um, was told recently by her doctor, oh, well, Evoshield doesn't work anymore. We're not offering it. Uh, and then um, I, my urging, she consulted one of the uh, California experts 
on the management of COVID who said, no, we're still giving it. There's still some benefit. It's not as powerful against Omicron, but where there's still some benefit and in people whose back is against the wall, so to speak, in terms of protecting themselves, it's reasonable to continue doing it. So uh, one size fits all medicine. Well, uh, by definition, it's not going to fit all. Uh, just a personal anecdote about Medicare. Back when I was in uh, insurance-based medical practice, uh, the what we were reimbursed by, uh, for Medicare patients just about covered our the overhead it took to uh, to see those patients. And it was an ethical thing for me. If someone switches to Medicare, I'm going to continue. They're my patient. I'm going to continue to see them. If I take a small loss, uh, as long as I can stay in business and, you know, kind of uh, adapt, I will. And of course, that's one of the reasons I that primary care doctors don't make, you know, they make like less than half of what other doctors make is because, yeah, we're, we're that person. Uh, cognitive care is really underpaid by Medicare. Uh, for example, one of my partners, he was very crafty with money. Um, if he did a physical on a patient or if he even saw a patient for, let's say, a cold, he would always try to find a skin lesion to biopsy because that would double his reimbursement for Medicare. It, the, it, it takes maybe, I got, I'm pretty fast at it. It takes about three minutes to do a skin biopsy. And for that, three to five minutes of t- doing a skin biopsy, you actually receive the same compensation that you'd get for a 30-minute Medicare physical, at least back, you know, 10 years ago when I was doing that. And I and, and that's ridiculous, okay? But m- because of the way they set the pricing for Medicare, it's very, very procedure-oriented. We have way more procedures in this country because than other countries because Medicare will cover any procedure and it pays well for them. And it doesn't pay well for you to talk the patient out of a procedure. And you have a perverse incentive to do procedures. So it's broken. And that's why when people talk about, oh, let's just go to Medicare for all, I roll my eyes saying, okay, that's an uninformed opinion. Uh, How do we fix this? Well, for one thing, you educate and pay a whole bunch more primary care doctors and you stop making it you you stop giving uh you you stop creating a system where the only way that someone can pay off their medical education debt is to become a subspecialist and do a lot of procedures then what happens you get what you pay for which is to say primary care and appropriate procedures uh rather than churning and you know there's lots of gray areas it's hard to talk see, to convince a man to see something your way when his paycheck depends on him seeing it another way, right? Let's uh, read one from Joan in Pleasanton. That's a, that's a good one. So Joan writes, a friend question regarding chemo. Uh, this is about a 63-year-old female with invasive ductal carcinoma in situ of the left breast. Tumor focality is uniform. She gives me the size, the histological grade, the pattern, the nuclear grade. She goes on to tell us three sentinel lymph nodes excised with two negative for carcinoma and one with isolated tumor cells identified. She had a nipple sparing mastectomy of the left breast on December 16th, 2022. And so, uh, first of all, and then the question here is she's decided to have chemotherapy, but not radiation although her oncotype uh, diagnosis test score was 26. 
I had asked for her what your thoughts were regarding whether or not to have chemo. Her further conversations with her oncologist convinced her to go ahead with the chemo. So uh, first of all, uh, Joan, uh, there's a contradiction here. You can't have invasive ductal carcinoma in situ. By definition, carcinoma in situ means that the tumor has not spread outside the left bre- uh, outside the breast. And if it's if it's in a lymph node, it's already spread. So what we have is invasive ductal carcinoma with one positive node. And so let's let's talk uh, about the uh, the onco test and exactly what it is. So it's a test looking at the tumor. And it looks at the activity of 21 genes, all of which are known to influence how likely a cancer is to grow and or respond to treatment. And these are genes like the P53 and KRAS and uh, mTOR and, you know, lots and lots of other genes that we have associated with cancer that are sometimes oncogenes. Sometimes they are targets for existing chemotherapy. And so we can use this to make a probability statement about two things, the likelihood that the breast cancer is going to come back and whether or not you're likely to benefit from chemotherapy because this is an early stage invasive breast cancer. So, you know, how how likely is chemo to help if that tumor isn't really got anything that the chemo can attack, then you probably, it may not be worth doing. And that's, you know, not great, obviously, because it lowers your risk of cure. And so the score goes from zero to 100, and your friend is right on the on the cusp. She's at 26 to 100, and this is a cancer that has a high risk of, e- of recurrence. So the benefit of chemo is likely to be greater than the risk of side effects. And there's lots of other things we look at, cancer grade, etc. So what you what you get out of this test this oncogene test is a probability statement and it's not the same a probability is not the same as a measurement okay it's it's a probability it's like odds think about a horse race okay and you've got a lineup and the horse in lane 1 is geiger counter and geiger counter is a favorite won lots of races so the odds are that this horse is going to win this race. So you you know you bet on that horse, you're going to get a small return on your bet. And maybe the horse in line D is um, Sluggo, and Sluggo's never won a race. New horse, nobody knows anything about it, and so they're off. But Sluggo wins. Sluggo wins by two two lengths. And unfortunately, this tumor that your friend has is is a early tumor that already got to the lymph node. So if it's in the lymph node, even if it's just one or two cells that they that they find, they only check three lymph nodes. There could be there there could be cells that got through the lymph node that are sitting in the bone marrow, that are sitting in the brain, and you don't know that. And the one thing you can say about chemo is it goes everywhere. So it's going to possibly strangle these baby cancers in the cradle. And so I think it really does make sense not to do it if the lymph nodes are positive. Before we had the oncogene test, if somebody had positive lymph nodes, we went after it with chemo. Now we can be a little bit more proactive and not treat people needlessly because the chemo is not what is going to, you know, cause suffering, but not help them. Uh, but this, this is a, this is a focusing agent for probability but it's not the same as uh, 
a measurement of risk, which is kind of, I think, how you were thinking about it. And that's just not the way to think about it. In our last five minutes, we'll take uh, this last email from Bart in Southern California. Uh, Bart says, Hi, Dr. Don. I was reading an article by a retired oncologist. His advice was not to take a multivitamin or supplements. He went on to say that one of the ways body detects and kills cancer cells is by detecting free radicals. And if you take antioxidants, you lessen the amount of free radicals and increase the odds of cancer. What do you think? Personally, it seems more like sitting on a teeter-totter with an 800-pound gorilla on the other end. Taking a multivitamin would be like adding a pound to your weight on the teeter-totter end. Okay, Bart, we're going to fight on your metaphor here. So, uh, first of all, there is a factual error in your first paragraph. Your doctor, the oncologist, is saying that one of the ways the body detects and kills cancer cells is by detecting free radicals. That is that is fat, a factual error. That is not true. Free radicals actually, like radiation, damage DNA. DNA damage is a risk factor for cancer. Cancers occur when the cells don't replicate property and DNA gets turned on that shouldn't be turned on. Something that contributes to that happening is, in fact, uh, free radicals, which are basically charged particles, uh, ravaging through the DNA and ricocheting off of the gene. Another way that happens is by radiation, either from the sun, from cosmic rays, or from too many CT scans bouncing off. People who work in a nuclear power plant, people who fly around uh, in the, you know, at 30,000 feet for their entire life, people who do shift work. Okay, If you're flying around at 30,000 feet, you get more cosmic rays. You've got less radiation absorbing them. So you have more free radicals being generated because it's pinging off of molecules and pinging off of your DNA. If you are uh, working, let's say, a shift worker or you're under high stress, those stressors actually create free radicals. And you have more free radicals pinging off your DNA, more lottery tickets in the cancer lottery. So that's how antioxidants help. And the best antioxidants are dietary antioxidants, and that's to say eating a wide variety of fruits and vegetables. There's a great deal of epidemiologic evidence in favor of uh, antioxidants in diet, largely because you don't get massive amounts of them. In studies where they've tried giving people massive amounts of an antioxidant as an extract, the results have been underwhelming in terms of reducing the risks of cancer. But part of the problem with that is if I take an antioxidant today, the cancer I prevent is probably 10, 15 years in the future. And we don't often track people for that 15 years. We track them for, oh, three to five years and then say, well, cancer rates were the same, so clearly antioxidants don't work. I think that's because the cancers were already there when you started giving them the antioxidants and you found them three to five years later, well, guess what? It doesn't cure, it prevents, and prevention takes a long time when you're talking like about cancers, which start off as one cell and they have a geometric progression, but by the time they get big enough for us to find them, they've often been in the body from five to 10 years. So a study that's for three years, I don't ever find persuasive. There's also 
you know, lots and lots of devil in the details. I have heard this study, the carrot study, quoted so many times about, you know, beta carotene uh, actually makes lung cancer worse. And it's like when you actually read the study, it only made lung cancer worse in the people who didn't quit smoking. And in the people who quit smoking, they actually had less lung cancer than the people who quit smoking and were in the placebo group. But you don't hear that because that's not uh, in the interest of the oncologist, right? They, uh, why would they, you know, I'm not saying there's a conspiracy in oncologists once you'd get cancer, uh, but I really am not. I don't think there's any kind of conspiracy operative here. Uh, I, but I don't think that taking antioxidants increases your risk of cancer. I think that's just bad science and inappropriate uh, conclusions. With respect to your metaphor of the teeter-totter, uh, no, it's not like adding one pan, a pound to your weight on the teeter-totter with the 800-pound gorilla. It's more like wearing sunscreen, right? Skin cancer rates correlate with the amount of sun you get, particularly uh, radiation that causes injury. So if, you, if you're tanning slowly and you spend your life out in the sun, your, your rates of melanoma may not be higher, but your rates of uh, basal cell will definitely be higher. Melanoma? Well, to get that one, you need to burn the deep layer. So you need a, a blistering sunburn. And even one blistering sunburn at the age of eight, well, when you're 27, that's when you're going to see your melanoma. So again, cancers take a long time to show up. Benefits of wearing sunscreen? Well, you'd have to follow the person for 20 years to see the benefit of wearing sunscreen. And sunscreen itself has a side effect. It lowers your vitamin D. Guess what low vitamin D in the skin does? It reduces the chance of grabbing those free radicals that uh, that the radiation from the sun bounces through your skin. So you've, uh, you've got kind of a double thing going on there with your sunscreen. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.